Good morning. It's great to be together. Good morning. And um, it's just, I'm loving summer right now. Yeah. 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 I want to honor Ryan here and just uh, say a quick prayer. Oh, it's important to get started. God, it is great to be here to, to worship you. And I pray that's where our, our hearts and our minds are this morning. I pray that you help us to be focused um, really on you, um, your love for us. And God, I pray that we can just bask in that love this morning. Mm-hmm. I pray that you, uh, you talk through uh, Carolyn and I, um, mm-hmm. say the words that uh, you want to say through us, mm-hmm. that we can vessels of, uh, of your will. And I uh, pray that we can uh, have open hearts and um, open minds to whatever you want to teach us this morning. And just grateful. So we're going through the series of the um, uh, book on Psalms 23, and um, we're kind of taking turns here. Um, Ness got to talk about uh, green pastures and still waters, mm-hmm. and we get to talk about restoration. And, uh, I was trying to figure out why, why us for restoration. Yeah, really. <laughs> um, and then uh, we were at a, a retreat last weekend, and part of the retreat we were looking at our strengths. And so we took this survey. Um, let's yeah, so basically, it's, it's assessing your strengths based on a survey that you've taken. It's a long series of questions, and you try and answer the question that best fits you. And uh, then it gives you the five greatest strengths at the end. And my greatest strength was restorative. Number one. So I guess that's, that's why. <laughs> it all fits with my, what my dad used to tell me. I'm the youngest of five kids. Uh, when they, then we had a sixth later um, when he remarried. Um, but he always said, you know, Pat, you're the fixer. You're always the restorer. You always have to fix the relationships that uh, are not, go, not going right and not going the way you think it should. There's a conflict in the family. You're always trying to fix it. And, and he said, and it fits with what you do. If the appliance you know, is broken, anything in the house is broken, you got to take it apart and you got to put it back together. Um, so I guess that's why we're up here and uh, getting your green pastures, the water for that restoration. <laughs> And uh, um, Carolyn and I were both kind of thinking about you know what we want to say, and we really wanted to define restoration. Mm-hmm. Um, and we know the definition of restoration when it, when it relates to a car um, or furniture yeah. or even a, a relationship. Mm-hmm. And when you're restoring something, you're basically well. The, the definition from Webster says that you're returning something to its original state or to a better state than you found it. And uh, so when you're restoring your car, you're stripping it all down. You're taking all the rust off of it. You're taking all the parts apart, um, <laughs> replacing ones that have failed, and then putting it back together. It's going to be uh, an entirely new car when you're done. That's right. <laughs> probably better than when you started. Okay. Um, and the same thing with, with furniture. You take it, strip it down, and sometimes you pull it apart, you re-glue it, put it back together, and it looks better than, than the original. Then as it applies to relationships, um, I was thinking about this in... We're, we're a product of divorced families. And I was thinking that relationships are probably the hardest thing to restore, mm-hmm. as evidenced by the, the amount of divorce that we have, the amount of conflict that we have in, in families. It's a lot of work to restore. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a whole lot easier to be restored in a relationship with God yeah. because the other, the other part of the uh, equation is perfect. That's right. And mm-hmm. so it doesn't have to have, have two imperfect people being restored. It's 
So we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, this morning. And um, <clears throat> Psalms 23 is tough for me because uh, um, I associate it with funerals. Mm. It's used almost exclusively in funerals. And I have vivid memories of both my grandparents, my uh, father's uh, parents at their funeral. And the only thing I remember from those funerals was Psalm 23. So I associate it with, with death and just not, not a great feeling. My oldest brother, Chris, has a, um, a, um, a strong liking for Psalm 23 in the, in the Psalms as well because I think he understands the restoration part of it. Mm. He, um, uh, he's in recovery, uh, addiction to uh, drugs and alcohol, and uh, he's been sober like 20, 25, 26 years now. Wow. And he appreciates that whole concept of restoration. Mm. And so it's, it's, uh, it kind of speaks to, to his soul, and it's, it's super important. And I, I never really thought about that until we start uh, looking at what, what restoration really means in, in the Psalms and uh, how important it is. And I wanted to um, um, just look at some scriptures. I was thinking the best way to, to define restoration is to look at it, um, all the instances in the Bible. And so you look at, at the Bible, and it, from the very beginning, there's restoration. There's a need for restoration from Adam, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, um, even Noah, Need had, had, had to be restored. Moses, Abraham. So through all of time, there's a common element where God's creation strays. God's creation um, is uh, disobedient. God's creation just doesn't get it. And so he has to make the work and create the restoration for his creation. First scripture we're going to look at is, um, well actually, when I was looking through all the, all the instances of restoration in, in the Bible, I was seeing a pattern there. And um, the restoration is just, it, it's part of a cycle of life. And there, there's a pattern in the examples that I'm seeing. There's a pattern of um, blindness or ignorance. There's a pattern of beginning to understand why you need res- uh, restoration. And then there's a pattern for wanting the restoration. And then there's finally the acceptance of it. Mm-hmm. And that's a sec- successful restoration. Yeah. So I, I first looked at um, King David. And in 2 Samuel 12, <coughs> Nathan approaches David after he's blown it um, with uh, Bathsheba and with uh, Uriah, um, her husband. And uh, Nathan comes to David in, in verse 12 and says, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to a rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle and prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you and your master's wives in your arms. I gave you all of Israel and Judah. And if all this hadn't been, had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why do you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. 
Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you despised me and, uh, and took the wife of your identity to be your own. This is what the Lord says, Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to the one who is close to you, and you will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this in broad daylight before all of Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because you are doing this, uh, by doing this, you have shown utter contempt for the Lord. The son born to you will die. Mm-hmm. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and spent the night laying in sackcloth on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him uh, to get him up from the ground, but he refused and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's attendants were afraid to tell them uh, that the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, he wouldn't listen to us when we spoke to him. How can, how can we now tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that the tenants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground, and after he had washed and put, his lo- uh, put on lotions and changed his clothes, he went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and the request, uh, at, his request, at his request, they served him food, and he ate. Mm-hmm. His attendants asked him, Why are you acting this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept, but now the child is dead, and you get up and eat. He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me, and let the child live. But now that he's dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back? I will go with him, but he will not return to me. Mm-hmm. And it struck me that David is, he just blew it. He needs restoration. But he didn't know it. He didn't recognize it. He's just going on with his life. And Nathan comes and confronts him. God comes and confronts him. And um, David was just blind to him until he heard the story. Then he was enraged. Mm-hmm. At that point, he went from being numb or blind to it to all of a sudden seeing a need for restoration of God, restoration of everybody that they wrong. And he goes through this whole mourning process of uh, you know, his, his son that's dying and the whole concept of God just being taken from him. And he begins to, to evolve into an understanding. It seems odd to me that he was so blind to that, mm-hmm. but I can identify. Mm-hmm. When I'm at my worst, that's when I see the need for restoration of God, the relationship with God, for my own part of my relationship with God. Wow. Uh, <clears throat> so that was uh, King David, and then I'm going to look at, um, uh, let's see, oh, Saul of Tarsus, who we know is the Apostle Paul. Um, in Acts 9. I think you'll see a correlation here. Come on, Pat. In Acts 9, it's, uh, the NIV is, um, titles this section as Saul's conversion. And I don't believe that. I don't think it's Saul's conversion. I think it's Saul's restoration. Because he didn't need to be converted to anything. And in Saul's mind, he was doing what, he, what was right. He was obedient to the law. Right. He was uh, uh, doing, seeking out God's will and executing it. Mm-hmm. So he didn't need to be converted to anything. He needed to be restored because what he thought was right wasn't right. Mm-hmm. 
and God has pointed out to him. In uh, Acts 9, <coughs> verse 1, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went on to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any, any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on the journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Men traveling with Saul uh, stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. They led him to the, uh, by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man uh, from, from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a, a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to the holy people of Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim the name of the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I will show him how much, we, uh, how much he must suffer for my name. Mm-hmm. And again, we start the whole story, and Saul's blind, but not really blind. So God takes him to the next step and makes sure he's blind. Wow. <laughs> and he, he starts that process of restoration. And I think, again, he, Saul needed to be broken to understand what he was doing was not right. And I think that's the hard part of it. When we talk about restoration, why it's, it's kind of a bad word to us is because it's painful. Yeah. It's a painful process. Mm-hmm. And in order for that process to take its course, we have to have the, the faith and the hope that what we're going through is going to produce right. restoration with God. Mm-hmm. And I think for myself, that's my biggest struggle. I can, see, I can see the stories. I can even identify the need for restoration, but I can get caught up in, do I really want to go through the pain of it? Do I want to do what, what's right so they can get to the other side? And it's, it's tough. And um, uh, Steve had brought up a bunch of sheep packs uh, in his lesson. And I found another sheep pack that um, a sheep, the way it's built, can actually get knocked on its back. And it's like a turtle can't get back up. And they call it casting. The so sheep is, is casted. And the, if the sheep doesn't have any help, it could be there for days and it could even die because mm-hmm. we can't eat or drink and I think there are a lot of times where I'm in that situation where I'm cast mm-hmm. and I know I need help but I don't want to seek the help mm-hmm. yeah. or I don't know how to seek the help mm-hmm. so I just lay there on my back <laughs> downcast and uh, um, it just it struck me it's, you know, all those simple sheep facts that have a whole lot of meaning mm-hmm. yeah. <coughs> So, and, and again, Paul has to go through that the hard stuff and he has to get to the other side for, for his, the restoration of his, his relationship with God. And now I want to look at the, the Apostle Peter. Um, so we looked at this scripture uh, last week on the, on the retreat and um, Steve Schaff asked us to, to just think about our relationship if we had breakfast with Jesus and what, what our relationship and what our conversation would be like with, 
with Jesus that gave me uh, it made me think a lot about what happened. And um, you know, Peter in his in his denial of Jesus three times, um, and then and then Jesus comes to him in, in John twenty one and verse fifteen and to, to be in reinstated. And in verse fifteen it says, When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourselves and went where you wanted to. But when you're old, you'll. And when you're old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. Mm -hmm. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death that Peter uh, would glorify God. Mm -hmm. Then he said to him, "Follow me." Mm -hmm. And I think anybody that's read the whole story of of, of Peter's denial in this situation, and um, you know, they they say, "Well, why why did Jesus ask him three times?" And the, the common response. Is, well, he denied him three times. I started thinking about that. And in, in the Bible, numbers mean things. Wow. And the meaning th- uh, throughout the Bible of the number three is completeness. Wow. So if it was three times that Peter denied him, he denied him completely. Mm-hmm. And so in this whole restoration, Peter's he's, he's hurt, he's feeling it. Well, why do you keep asking him? Are and you play violin, you know there's this little piece of fluff 
from the resin in the bow over the years, it just sort of tumbles inside the violin instrument. Mm. And the guy pulls this thing out, this little piece of fluff inside this instrument, after he's you know brought it back, it hadn't been played in probably 50 years, and he pulls it out with tweezers, and it's this little tiny piece of fluff, and he says, this was from all the music she played in the concert. One thing that, that's been kind of, like, I don't know, coming back to me, like, in real life, when I think of things, is the story of Jacob and how he wrestled with God. And, like, Jacob starts off, you know, even as a young boy, he's manipulative and he's, like, trying to get his brother's birthright and he's, he lies to his dying father. And this guy is, like, all about me, me, me. And yet, here he is in the Bible, and I'm thinking, why? <laughs> why are we giving this guy space? But when I think about it, like it just it resounds with me, like trying my whole life, like I want God's blessing, I want God's blessing, and why am I not getting blessed? And why am I so frustrated? And why am I why are we feeling all this loss from such a young age? It's like, you think it was just one parent? Like, <laughs> hello. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we had to have all these step parents and step grandparents. It's like, I just wanted one, like just one that would like love me, right? Yeah. And I think like with Jacob, he just was so desperate to be blessed with what he thought would be a blessing. And so Jacob wrestles all night, and he's strong, and this angel's just sort of like, you know, he's like with my sisters, they'd be like holding me back like this, and I'd be swinging punches, and they'd be like, Carolyn. And if my arms weren't long enough, and I'd be like, ah! And they remind me of the fact that I was little and powerless, and anyway. Um, but so Jacob's fighting this angel, and he doesn't give up all night long. And you got to think, like, how exhausting is that? And that's kind of like me at night. Like I'm, I'm wrestling with God, and I wake up, I sleep, I'm praying about things, I'm mostly worrying about things, separating on things, and and then I start to pray, and then I, I wake up the next morning, I'm like, oh, God put me to sleep. Like I started praying, and then He like blessed me to sleep. Mm-hmm. And it's like so Jacob, you know, in the morning, in the dawn, when there's there are no more shadows, and there's you know, and it's clear footing, um, the angel touches his hip and puts it out of socket, and basically saying, you wrestled with me, you wrestled with God, and you're strong, but I'm going to give you something to remember. You are not God. You don't know what the plan is. You need to trust me. And Jacob limps the rest of his life. The Bible says just he always got in really painful, you know, with no PT, no OT, nothing like that. <laughs> no MRI. Yeah. No surgeon. Like, you limp with that thing. It hurts. Mm-hmm. No copay. That's true. Um, <laughs> It's 
So I think I, I don't want my character flaws, my sin, to be my personality. Oh, that's just who I am. Mm -hmm. I really want people to feel loved. Mm -hmm. I really want my character, when I leave this world, to be fruits of the Spirit. Yeah. Specifically mm -hmm. peace. Specifically joy. And I'm avoiding the patient one because I really am <laughs> <laughs> avoiding that one. Nobody's got time for that. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm very lately going off. Ah, you know, Jacob, yep. So, um, but in the end, you know, you look at like Psalm 85, and the Bible picks up and talks about Jacob again. And it's, and it's Jacob's restoration. And it's like he.
but that's why I chose the school to work at. Like I felt like I could really flex, use all my skills being a nurse with my feet, but I could really make a difference in the students' lives. Yeah. And so the kids get off the bus and they're like, oh, you know, every day they're like the same. You see the kids who know their background, you know where they're coming from, mm -hmm. and your heart just breaks. And you can see the kids that are just struggling in so many different ways. Yeah. And I thought, you know, this last day of school, I'm just gonna pray over these kids as they come, like as fast as I can for these kids. I know most of their names by now, and it's a big school, and I'm just like, this child, Lord, protect them through the summer, help them to stay with their body. Lord, help them, you know, like, please let them make good choices and mm. protect the innocence of this little one. She mm. goes through surgeries every six months, for, you know, oh. spinal surgeries every six months, and don't let this one get COVID, because, you know, and you just, my heart just softened, and I thought, mm. that's a shepherd, right? Looking after the little ones. I'm gonna miss them. <laughs> Be good kids. Maybe I get to see them next year. But um, yeah, just think like what we're supposed to be for each other is that shepherd, right? Like looking around, making sure that people's needs are being met. Like if someone's looking sad, like ask those questions. Sometimes you gotta ask more than once, more than twice. And the third time, you usually get an honest answer, right? Um, and I think that's the heart of Jesus. Like he was a man of suffering. He was familiar with it. He loved deeply. He longed to bring Jerusalem under his arms. He, he longed to love. Um, and that's where I think we feel most whole, is when we feel we have that purpose and we're living that way. And, um, and it's, it's about our restoration and it's about their restoration. And really it's about making sure we're walking each other home, right? Like we all get there together. And uh, anyway, that go from the repair shop to this, I just feel like God shows us so many times in every day, little tiny things, how much he loves us, how much he longs to have restoration with us. Mm -hmm. And I will put one last pitch in here for this book, Gentle and Lowly. <laughs> Jeanette gave this to me when I was in a very dark place not so long ago um, by Dane Ortland, and it's really um, it's really rich, and I, I only now this morning, over a year, what, a year and a half he gave it to me? Um, there are sheep on the cover. <laughs> I just noticed that. I was like, oh, there's little black sheep too. Oh, interesting. These little ones that are cast down in the river. And it's like some painting from the Renaissance or something. But um, anyway, it's a great book. Um, it says it's the heart, for, the heart of Christ for sinners and sufferers. And it's just a really gentle, full of grace book. Just really just stretching my mind, mm -hmm. stretching my understanding, my faith. Um, it's been a really helpful tool for me. Um, so I'm happy to lend it out if anybody wants to. Amen. Amen. I forgot to bring a list. I, I made a list of uh, everywhere I saw restoration in the Bible. And in Psalms 23, it's restore my soul. But there is a long list of restore my uh, health. Um, Jeremiah is told that in um, uh, Jeremiah 30, I believe. Um, Psalm 85, Jacob has is restored his household and his belongings. Um, same with Job. There's a lot of restoration, but the ultimate rest restoration is really what, what we should be focusing on. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, we, we have our times of desperation where we want to be restored with a, a new job or uh, a better situation in our finances, whatever. And those are all important things. We, we can't stop there. We can't stop and forget the, the ultimate restoration. It's really just our restoration. And that's, that's what matters most. And I was thinking about uh, the times with Peter, uh, breakfast with Peter. I mean, <clears throat> so many times is just whining about life <laughs> and wanting things to be restored and not really having a conversation about 
share in our own lives, all these things that we want to do or our dreams or whatever, but are we really talking about our, our relationship with God with one another? And the final story I want to share with you guys is the story of the cost. Um, that's really why we're here. Yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I was looking at the, the crucifixion of Jesus, and I've always looked at it from his perspective and from the perspective of those on the ground watching it happen. And he paid the ultimate price, endured the pain, um, the, the shame, the ridicule, all for the restoration of us mm-hmm. to God. <coughs> And so I've looked at it from Jesus' perspective, I've looked at it from the, the crowd's perspective, looked at it from my perspective. But I was thinking last weekend, I've never looked at it from God's perspective. Mm-hmm. As he's watching this happen, he's hoping it happens. Yeah. He's relying on Jesus to make it happen. <coughs> right. Not because he's the victor, mm-hmm. but because he wants that relationship with us. And it means that much to him. Right. And I've never really looked at that perspective, how, how God just longs to be restored to us. God just longs to be with us. And he created us. And we've gone astray. And we continue through that cycle of going astray. Well, he told us he wants to have restoration. Yeah. And it's a pretty powerful thought. Like when I can think about it from Jesus' perspective, I, get, I feel guilty. Mm-hmm. And it kind of bugs me out. And when I look at it from my perspective as well. But looking at it from, from the perspective of God, that's pretty powerful. Yeah. My, my dad used to tell a story all the time about three guys went uh, uh, hiking, and uh, uh, they get lost. And one guy's a minister, one guy's a engineer, and the third guy's a psychologist. And they're being able to lose hope that they're ever going to find a way out of the woods, and they come along the cabin. And so they go up and knock on the door. There's no answer, and they say, "It's getting dark. We should probably just go in." And so they open the door, and it's just a kind of run-of-the-mill cabin, except for there's one thing that's different. In the middle of the, the, uh, the largest room, there's a stove wood stove, and it's hanging from the ceiling with bailing wire. And so the three of them start arguing, oh, you know, obviously, the engineer says, this guy knows thermodynamics, and he knows that if he raises the stove up, there will be a better flow of heat throughout the house. So it's a very practical solution to the problem. And the psychologist, no, 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 you don't understand. You know, think about it from the, the mind's perspective. He wants to return the, mo- the womb. So he raises the, the <laughs> stove up, curls up underneath it, he's getting that feeling of returning to the womb. And the, the uh, minister says, no, 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 no. That's fire lifted up. It's been a symbol throughout the Bible. And as they're arguing about it, the guy that owns the cabin walks in and uh, startles the guy that turns and we're arguing, well, why do you have this stove in the middle of the room held up by bailing wire? What's the significance of that? Settle the argument for us. And the guy said, had a lot of bailing wire, but not much stovepipe. <laughs> <laughs> I tell that story because we need to have everybody's perspective, right? Yeah. We need to, as a team, we need to figure things out in life. Yeah. And as we're restored by God in every stages of our lives, we need to have the perspective of others. Mm-hmm. Even if it's wrong, we'll learn from all the different perspectives or even if wrong, but it's just different, right? And we need that, that perspective. And so I want to encourage you this morning as we take communion to, to just think about the perspective of the cross from everybody's perspective. And, and Peter can't be there because he completely denied Jesus. When John and, and uh, Jesus' mother are there, 
think about those things as we uh, as we pray and take communion. Amen. God, I'm grateful that we can be here this morning as family, that we can uh, really um, understand you better. We can understand Jesus' sacrifice better because um, we are a family with different perspectives. We all have something to offer to one another because you created us um, for that purpose. And God, I just pray that uh, we can uh, have soft hearts in front of you. We can have soft hearts with one another and uh, really just uh, know that uh, you want to want to be with us and you want us to um, just have our souls restored. And you bless us, bless us with so much. You restore, restore us with so much. Yeah. And we know that you are capable of just the restoration of our souls. So we devote this time to you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.